0: Whether you're a new believer in Christ, or whether you've been saved for decades, or perhaps maybe you haven't even been to any type of church service before, you're probably familiar with the fact that the Bible, the Word of God, is divided into two main portions, an Old Testament and a New Testament. Instead of the word testament, you could also, many, many times, and this is one of those times, you could substitute the word covenant for the word testament. A covenant is simply a legal contract of some sort. It involves promises, either promises from one party directed to the other party in the covenant, or a mutual exchange of promises, like in the marriage covenant between a husband and wife. They exchange vows or promises to each other. The word testament and covenant can largely be used synonymous in the context in which we're talking about it today, in which our passage that our brother Joe read for us speaks about it. You may have heard of a last will and testament, the dying covenant of an individual who disposes of whatever possessions and funds that individual might have in their life. That last will and testament may be conditional if you do something, then you inherit or unconditional, just based on who a person is. I leave everything that I own, all my worldly goods, to my children to be divided equally amongst them. These are just examples. So when we encounter the word testament or the word covenant, in the Scriptures we can largely think of them as synonymous In Scripture, there are two main types of covenants. One is a conditional covenant. If you do this, then I, the other party, God, then I will do this. If you obey me, I will bless you. And the Mosaic Covenant sometimes called the Sinaitic Covenant, because it was given at Mount Sinai. It was much more than the Ten Commandments. It's much of what you read in fo- as far as instruction, moral instruction, social instruction, religious instruction in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, four of the five books written by Moses. That was the conditional covenant. When God gave it at Mount Sinai, the people said, all that the Lord says we will do. They repeated it. Three times they made that statement. They made that vow, that promise to the Lord. The Lord said, if you obey my covenant, I will bless you. If you disobey my covenant, there will be consequences. In fact, just before the children of Israel, after 40 years in the wilderness, were about to enter the promised land, Moses put them on the sides of a mountain, facing each other, two mountains, six tribes and six tribes. One of them pronounced blessings for obedience and the other pronounced cursings or consequences for disobedience to that covenant. It was a conditional covenant. They were not going to inherit the blessings without the obedience. That's a conditional covenant. That's the covenant he made at Sinai, the old covenant. The other kind of covenant is an unconditional covenant. And we were all exposed to this and learned about it when we covered the life of Abraham because God made a covenant with Abraham. He gave him promises in chapter 12 to leave his father's land and to go by faith to a land that God would show him. And he said he gave these promises, To everyone who blesses you, I will bless them. Everyone who curses you, I will curse. Through you, Abraham, all the peoples, all the nations, not just your family, not just your descendants, not just the Jews, all in the world will be blessed. Paul, the apostle, in writing to the Galatians, explains this as referring to Christ, through Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The unconditional covenants in Scripture, three key ones, the covenant to Abraham. God just said what he would do. He gave the promise in chapter 12. He ratified it legally in a covenant in chapter 15. Abraham was required to do nothing but accept God at his word. Have faith and trust in him. Believe God, not do anything. A second one was an unconditional covenant to David in which God promised that David's greater son would rule forever from the throne of David, that he would be holy and righteous and never do anything to disobey God. He would be as a father to David's greater son, And David's greater son, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be as a son to God the Father. The third great unconditional covenant is the new covenant. The Lord instituted it. It was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, as we'll see in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. But it was instituted by Jesus Christ On the night in which he was betrayed, after taking bread, giving thanks, passing it to the disciples and said, take, eat of it, he then, the third cup of the Passover supper, he blesses that cup and he says, take, drink from this cup, all of you, it is the blood of the new covenant, the new testament, the new covenant in my blood. It was an unconditional covenant, just like the covenant to David and the covenant to Abraham. In order to receive the blessings of those covenants, nothing needed to be done but the exercise of faith and trust in the God who made that covenant. There were no requirements. Do this and the blessings of that covenant will come to you. It's an unconditional covenant. It's very different. Than the covenant he gave at Sinai. Now, this passage today, as you notice, the word covenant was used. And that's why we took this time by way of introduction to explain what a covenant is and the two different types of covenants. The title of today's message is Hold Fast to Christ, Your Mediator. A mediator is a go between between two parties. In a covenant. And Christ is that mediator. Paul, writing to Timothy, makes this very clear in 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Christ is your mediator. He is the one who mediates that covenant, that new covenant, in His blood. Christ is revealed in this passage as the mediator of a new, greater covenant. We're going to see how this covenant is greater than the old when we get to the third point of this morning's message. But if you take only one thing away, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Him and Him alone for your salvation, trusted in what He did on the cross bearing the sins of the world in his body, shedding his precious blood and dying under the wrath and judgment of God, and then rising from the dead three days later. God wants you to know that you are in a covenantal relationship with him and he has forgiven your sins. You're going to see how this comes out in this passage. But take that away as encouragement this morning. You are in a covenantal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God the Father. The New Testament even talks about it as if it's a marriage covenant between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. This covenantal relationship is a deep, intimate, personal relationship a special relationship. And part of that relationship what always separated man and woman, mankind from God was their sins. Isaiah says in chapter 59, verse 2, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. But now, in the New Covenant, The sin question is dealt with. It's been taken out of the way. It's off the table. Unlike the Jewish priests, when we get to chapter 10, we'll see that even at the time that this letter was written, the writer writes, every priest stands daily, present tense, not past tense, stood daily, no, stands daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But in Jesus Christ, in the new covenant, the sin question is done away with. He paid fully once for all the penalty, the price for your sins and mine, for the sins of the world. Take that away. Be encouraged by it. That you are in a special relationship with God and Christ and that your sins are forgiven. Let's get right into this and see that Christ is not the mediator, the go-between between God and man of a flawed covenant. God does not settle for less than perfection. We know this very clearly From Scripture. God has a perfect holy standard. Jesus Christ, in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says this Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God's standard is perfection. But we know from Paul the Apostle's writings to the Romans, that there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God is His holiness. Isaiah 6 makes that clear. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. What was it talking about? God's holiness and connected that with glory. God will not settle for less than perfection from us and even in a covenant. It says in verse 7, for if that first covenant, the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law. The rest of the law, Jewish rabbis have counted, that there's 613 commandments in the law. Not just 10, 613. I don't know if I could name you 30 or 40 of them. That's far short of the 613 that they needed to follow and obey perfectly. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second covenant. The very fact that there was a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ shows that there was a problem. The problem was in the understanding of what that first covenant, what the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was intended to do. It was never intended to make anyone perfect. It was never intended to make anyone acceptable to God and to earn or merit eternity in heaven with God and Christ. That was never its intention. That's the intention of the world's religions, to show yourself good enough by deeds that you do. That's the intention of Christian cults, to work your way to heaven. That's the intention of false, unbiblical forms of Christianity, which require you to do deeds in order to merit, earn God's salvation. That's not biblical Christianity. That's the old covenant. Do this and you shall live. But God knew no one would be able to do it. Paul makes that plain, all have sinned. God required perfection. You're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But none of us are. That puts us all in a very bad position if there was only an old covenant. But there is a new covenant in Christ's blood that provides forgiveness. Jesus Christ did what no other person was ever able to do. I do always those things that please the Father, he said. And the Father said more than once, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The fault of the first covenant was the intent and understanding that man had in it. And that's going to come out in a later verse. The covenant was not false. The fault lied with man who tried to earn God's salvation and always failed. You failed, I have failed. It was not perfect because it never made anyone perfect. The covenant itself never made anyone perfect, and God desired perfection. You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect on that basis because it could not accomplish what man wanted to spend eternity in heaven with God because it was impossible to carry out without a single misstep, without a single fault, even unknowingly, all the commands of that old covenant. It's not possible. No one's ever done it. No one ever could do it except for Jesus Christ. Christ is the mediator of a covenant, a new covenant, that was planned beforehand. The new covenant was not an afterthought with God. God didn't say, Meshuggah, oh no. They're not following the covenant. They're not able to obey. What am I going to do now? God thought of this from eternity past. The old covenant was to show us that none of us can keep God's moral law perfectly without even a single failing. God therefore planned from eternity past the perfect covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood that would make it possible for mankind to experience eternal life and salvation with God in Christ. God planned ahead for this new covenant. It wasn't an afterthought. He said in verse 8, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Days are coming. He's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31 here. Jeremiah wrote this about 585, 590 years before Christ was born. Long before Christ was born. It'd be another 65, 70 years after the birth of Christ that Hebrews would be written. This is. This quote was written about 660 years before the writer refers to it. God always planned for a new covenant, a perfect covenant. And he made that covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Quick sidebar. What is the house of Israel and house of Judah? Israel, as a nation, consisted of 12 tribes. After the death of King David, I'm sorry, after the death of Solomon, David's son, Solomon was king over all 12 tribes, after Solomon's death, his son and a usurper both tried to claim the throne, and the 12 tribes were split. Two tribes remained loyal to Solomon's son, Rehoboam the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They were in the south of Palestine or the nation of Israel. The other ten tribes were further north. They followed the usurper. They were known as Israel or Ephraim after the largest of those ten tribes. And the two southern tribes were known as Judah, the kingdom of Judah in the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north. This is what he's referring to here. God was going to make a new covenant, not just with those who had remained loyal, but even with the rebel. What a beautiful picture. Paul basically teaches the same kind of truth in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, rebels, God reconciled us to himself through the cross. We were reconciled to God while we were rebels. God didn't just make this new covenant in Christ's blood with the loyals, the loyal Jews of the house of Judah, but with the house of Israel as well, the rebels. On the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Gentiles enter in to the new covenant that God made with Israel. The days were coming. God prepared beforehand. He always knew what he was going to do. Nothing took him by surprise. God planned for a very different covenant. It was not like the covenant that God made with their fathers on the day when I led them by the hand Uh, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This was to Sinai. The first stop after they came out of Egypt under Moses, after they crossed the Red Sea, that covenant was at Sinai. The covenant that he made in Christ's blood was not like that covenant. That covenant was conditional. Conditional. This covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood is unconditional. Its blessings of eternal life do not depend on you and I. It depends on what Christ did on the cross. God planned for an entirely different covenant because he knew that none of us would ever be able to keep even a single commandment. Paul talks about this. He thought he was a pretty holy guy as a Jew. But then he realized the commandment was, Thou shalt not covet. And he realized that he failed. That there was always going to be an improper desire, an inordinate desire for something in his life. And when that covenant, when that commandment came in, thou shalt not covet, he realized he was guilty before God. As much as he had tried as a Jew to obey perfectly the law of God, he realized he failed at the very least that commandment. So God planned for a different covenant, not like the covenant he made with the Jews at Sinai. It's an unconditional covenant. The reason God Plan for a different type of covenant, an unconditional covenant, he said, for they, the Jews, did not continue in my covenant. The reason why that covenant fault was found with it, it made no one perfect. The reason is they did not continue in that covenant. So God had a new covenant that would make all who believed and trusted in it perfect in His sight. It's not that God made a mistake. It's not that God didn't think it through. It's because you and I, from the Jewish people down to us today, we do not continue perfectly in that covenant. We don't obey the moral law of God. And so we need a new covenant, the one that's instituted in Christ's blood. What is God's relationship with those who ignore His covenant? He said, They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. I did not watch over them, is the idea. I did not bless them. Remember, that covenant had blessings and cursings. Do this and you shall live. Do this and I will bless you. That's God's promise. And whenever they did it, he fulfilled that promise. But more often than not, they rebelled against God and they did not continue in God's covenant. And so he did not watch over them. He did not care for them. They were taken away into captivity their idolatry and their immorality. God allowed foreign pagan nations to chastise his people Israel. God does not care for those who are outside of his covenant. He doesn't have that special covenantal love. Yes, he blesses everyone. Jesus Christ said this. He causes the Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Two examples of the many blessings God does bestow on everyone. This Theologians call this common grace. Everyone has it. God bestows some measure of health on everyone. Even if someone is chronically ill, they could be sicker. God gives common grace, sun and rain and food and shelter and clothing and some measure of health, many, many blessings from God. But in terms of salvation, in terms of a close family relationship, he does not care for those who are not part of his family, who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, whom he hasn't adopted into his own family. Christ is the mediator of a covenant that has blessings. You know, the highest form, in my opinion, of devotion and love is focused on the person themselves, regardless of what that person does. I've been married to my wife for over 43 years. I love her not because of what she does, but because of who she is. I think many of you can understand that. You can relate to that. Even if my wife is upset with me, I still love her. I'm not going to write her off after all that time. Most of the time, I probably deserve it anyways. She's much better at relationships than I am. But I think you get the point that I'm trying to make. My love for her will last the rest of my life, not because of what she does or what she doesn't do, but because of who she is. There's a commitment there. And I think you understand this, most of you, Perhaps all of you can at least conceptually grasp that point. My love for her is not conditional. It is unconditional. But with many other relationships and early in our marriage, perhaps before I understood the nature of real, true love, the kind of love God had for the world. Often, If she did something nice, then I would feel love towards her. And that's a lesser form of love I would submit to you, I would suggest to you. But sometimes we need that. God understands that we're still not perfect, even as believers in Christ. God understands that while the pinnacle is loving Him, loving Jesus Christ, For who they are, sometimes we need motivation and incentive. God understands this. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says this We make it our, our ambition in life to be pleasing to Him. And then He gives the Corinthians a reason. He shouldn't have to, because it's enough to just love God for who He is, our Creator our Lord and Master. But he says to them, why should you make it your ambition to be pleasing to God? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He understands, especially in the case of Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians, and also in our case, sometimes we need incentive for having gratitude and appreciation and love and devotion and commitment to God and Christ. Sometimes it's a reminder of future judgment. Here in the remaining verses in this passage, it's the blessings of the new covenant. He goes through a number of blessings of the new covenant. And if we're not there yet in our Christian walk, where we are just so caught up with God and Christ that we adore him, As we sang, then let these blessings that the writer is about to explain to us, let these blessings be the motivation to humble our heart, to bring us to our knees, to bring tears to our eyes, to break our heart. Let these blessings produce the gratitude and appreciation for God and Christ and all that they've done Let's quickly look at these blessings. The new covenant has the blessing of mental preoccupation. Our thoughts, our mind, our thought processes, the meditations of our mind should be pleasing to God. We should be preoccupied with God and his ways. For this is the covenant, the future covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. That's the first thing he mentions. You can't love God and Christ properly unless you love them in accordance with the way they desire. I might want to show love to my wife in a certain way. But if it's not something she wants, it's just selfish on my part. It's what I want, not what she wants. God's laws explain to us what he wants, how he wants us to love him. And he puts it into the mind. Paul in Romans 12 says, Be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind. It's God's law, God's Word that renews our mind. This is a blessing of the New Covenant. Going to the Word of God in the morning, or in the evening, or whenever, your lunch break, or listening to it on audio during your commute, should not be a burden. This is a blessing. For some of us, we need to change the way we view God's Word. Oh, no, i got to get that quiet time in again. Someone has said the Word of God goes through three phases. The medicine phase. Take it. It's good for you. You know, I remember that orange penicillin liquid that my mother used to shovel down my gullet when I had a sore throat. I thought it was a snow shovel coming at me. To this day... I can't eat orange jello because it tastes just like that. Take it. It's good for you. The next phase is the cereal stage, dry cereal with no milk. Do you ever try to eat bran flakes with no milk or no milk and sugar or without the raisins? It's dry, but it's nourishing. That's the way the Word of God is for some people. But then the final stage is the dessert stage, the peaches and cream stage. It's sweet like peaches. It goes down smooth like cream. God's word is so tasty. May us all pray to that end that God's word reaches the dessert stage for us. The New Covenant has the blessing of mental preoccupation. The New Covenant has the blessing of desirous devotion. The Word of God is not just to fill our minds so that we can walk around like a theologian. What enters our mind should percolate down to our heart, change our love and devotion. The more we understand about God and Christ, who they are and what they've done, the more we will love them the more gratitude and appreciation. He says, I'll put their laws into their mind, but he doesn't stop there. I will write them on their hearts. Just like the Ten Commandments were engraved in stone, God engraves his laws, his ways on our hearts, producing great devotion. It ought to be our desire to follow and obey him. That is part of the goal of the new covenant, to create Christ followers who show life service, not just lip service. Another blessing of the new covenant is the blessing of committed relationship. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We find out from the New Testament, even more than just his people, like the Jews, we are in his family. We've been adopted into his family. We have an inheritance, the New Testament. God has bequeathed to his children certain blessings, a certain inheritance. There's this committed relationship. I will be their God. Notice he doesn't say, I will be their God if they do this. That's the old covenant at Sinai. The new covenant, I will be their God. Plain and simple, open and shut, that's all he wrote. And they shall be my people. Not they shall be my people if they choose to obey. God is our God and we are his people. It is a committed covenant relationship that nothing can ever break. The new covenant has the blessing of intimate understanding. This is the covenant that I will make. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. It's intimate understanding. Sure, we we find out in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Peter 4, that God has given spiritual gifts to the church. One of them is teaching. It's mentioned in all four of those passages. It's important. We don't automatically understand everything about God's Word. The Holy Spirit, the true teacher, shines light, illuminates the Word. Sometimes He does it in your quiet time. When you read God's Word, other times He uses individuals to do that to teach you, to show you God's Word. But he says in the New Covenant, it's not going to be necessary. You have a special relationship with God, and He will give you intimate understanding. Not necessarily of of everything, otherwise God never would have given teachers to the church. But you can know the Lord. You can have an intimate understanding with Him. He says, for all will know me. From the least to the greatest, every believer in Christ has that ability to know God intimately as part of that relationship that they have with him. The new covenant has the blessing of infinite mercy. I will be merciful to their iniquities. He will not judge us for our sin for our iniquities, for our transgressions, for our trespasses against Him. He will show us mercy. He will not give us what we deserve. You know, the story is sometimes told. It may just be an illustration, whether it's true or not. As Napoleon Bonaparte was marching his armies through France, he was conscripting young men to serve in his army, against their will. And the story's told that he grabbed one teenage boy, 17 years old, the only son of his father, off the farms where he was plowing, conscripted him into the army, and though he'd been up early in the morning before the sun was up, doing chores on the farm, the commander in charge of him placed him on night watch, guard duty, and he fell asleep at the post. He was found to have fallen asleep, the 17-year-old lad. And he was taken before Napoleon for judgment, for trial and judgment. The father had heard about this, and because they didn't get very far, the father hurried before judgment was pronounced. And the story goes that the father appealed To Napoleon, have mercy towards my son. Please don't sentence him to death. Have mercy. Supposedly, Napoleon replied, he doesn't deserve mercy. And the farmer said, the father said, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. We don't deserve God's mercy. But because of what Christ did in undergoing the judgment of God, all of us who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, repent, turn from our sins, turn to God crying out to save us, will receive God's mercy on our iniquities. The new covenant has the blessing of eternal forgiveness. I will remember their sins no more. This is not a case of divine Alzheimer's that that God forgets that we ever sinned. No, this is judiciously. This is according to the law. In God's court, he will not hold our crimes against him, against us. He will recall to mind. This is active. This is not just passive. Oh, God forgets. This is active. I will call to mind their sins no more. It's an act of God's will. Just like when he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God chooses to call our sins to mind no more. Hallelujah. Isn't that great news? We are forgiven for Christ's sake. In conclusion... The new covenant has replaced the old covenant. And there is no other option. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is amazing. When the writer wrote this, as we'll see in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the priests were still offering sacrifices in Herod's temple in Jerusalem, Judaism was still trying to continue on. They ignored the veil that was torn in two when Christ died on the cross, signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies is now open to all. All can enter God's presence through faith in Jesus Christ and His death. But when he wrote this, they were still offering sacrifices. Do you know that in likely somewhere between three and five years the temple would be destroyed. Titus, the son of the Roman emperor at the head of the legions of Rome would encircle Jerusalem, besiege Jerusalem, eventually break into Jerusalem and destroy the city, destroy totally the temple so that one stone is not left upon another, exactly what Jesus Christ prophesied in the Gospels, that would happen. That happened in 70 A.D. It was obsolete when the veil was torn in two. It was ready to disappear. Just three to five years after he wrote this, these words, the temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D. God has replaced the old covenant with the new covenant. There's no other option. It's not new covenants. We don't get to write a new covenant the way we want. It was written in the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross. I'm hoping today you will turn to Christ for salvation. Trust in that new covenant in his blood. There's no other option available to you. Every other option involves your good works. And it will have fault. It will never make you perfect before God. If you're a believer in Christ today, will you give thanks and praise to God for all the blessings of the new covenant in Christ's blood? Think about some of the ones we went through. There's more, but at least the ones that the writer chooses to include here. Give thanks and praise to God for all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness to us. How we thank you for not just the blessings of the New Covenant, but the one who inaugurated the New Covenant in his own blood. We thank you for him. We praise you. We adore you. May our praise and adoration bring you great honor and glory. We ask all this for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.